The following program was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. American citizens have the right to be provided work so that they can support their families decently and properly. Now is the time to fight, to fight for the best interests of our city, and we have public housing was finally recognized as a proper function of government. It's not done by speeches. The LaGuardia Archives at LaGuardia Community College of the City University of New York presents The Dreamer and the Doer, The Life and Work of Fiorello LaGuardia, with narrator Tony Lobianco. other mayors went down with demands and ideas, but he came down with complete blueprints all ready to go. The opening of the Triborough Bridge in 1936 symbolized the vast physical changes that occurred in New York City while LaGuardia served as mayor. The Triborough was actually four bridges connecting three boroughs, the Bronx, Manhattan, and Queens. And to Fiorello, who loved engineering achievements, it was a masterpiece. The Triborough served as a vital link in a network of bridges, tunnels, and parkways which transformed the city during LaGuardia's administration. Two men were responsible for that transformation. The mayor himself and his parks commissioner, Robert Moses. In addition to a highway network, Moses and LaGuardia gave the city hundreds of new parks and playgrounds as well as public beaches and swimming pools. Both men saw themselves as builders and both shared the same vision to make a city a better place to live. But they could disagree violently. Robert Caro is Moses' biographer. They had a love-hate relationship. They were two men of, a, of course, immensely powerful personalities. And men who saw them fighting together in City Hall, well, one, he said, you know, we thought they were going to come to blows. They would circle each other around the room like two mad dogs screaming at each other. Regardless of their personal feelings, LaGuardia and Moses managed to work together for 12 years. As soon as LaGuardia took office, the mayor and his parks commissioner began renovating the city's parks and playgrounds. With money from the federal government for public works, the city hired unemployed architects, engineers, and superintendents, as well as tens of thousands of laborers, many of them untrained. The late Robert Moses. There were 82,000. I would wake up some morning and find you I have 82,000 people working for you. A third of them uh, completely incapable of doing any work that was worthwhile. I mean, a diamond cutter or something of that kind. He's not very good digging ditches. That winter, a good deal of construction activity took place in Central Park. Biographer Robert Caro. During 1934, which was the first year of the Goyard's uh, mayoralty, if you were sitting and looking out on Central Park, uh, you would have seen an army of men uh, working there. And indeed, they worked all day, and then at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, another shift of thousands of men came on. And Moses brought in arc lights and carbide lamps, and the park was like a giant illuminated landscape because they were rebuilding, the, they were creating a new Central Park Zoo, 
but more than that, they were redoing the entire park. Every structure in the park was was uh, refurbished. Every foot of path was repaved. The playground, he put in new playgrounds. He reshaped the whole park. And at three o'clock in the morning, people began to realize a whole different shift of men was coming on, and they worked all night. And when spring came, I think Moses had set May 1st as the reopening. When people came to Central Park, which had really been a terrible shape before, they found a completely new park. Every night a body should relax after all the wear and tear. Get that oxygen your body lacks, get it in the open air. Go and find the little rendezvous underneath the starry skies. Take someone like me along with you. Or a little exercise, petting in the park, bad boy, petting in the dark, bad girl. First you pet a little, let up a little, then you get a little kid. By May 1st, Moses had not only completed the work in Central Park, but 1,700 other park renovations throughout the city as well. Meanwhile, Moses had begun rapid construction on a series of new playgrounds. On a single day, July 15, 1934, LaGuardia dedicated nine memorial playgrounds. With his dedication speech relayed from one playground to another by way of a radio hookup, Robert Caro explains that Moses carefully orchestrated ceremonies like these to turn them into media events which would increase the mayor's prestige. I remember seeing one that was opened on 17th Street between 8th and 9th Avenues. There were flowers around for the opening, right? 25,000 chrysanthemums, right? There were platoons of police uh, men on horses, and the horses had really been carefully curried, and the sun, the whole, the whole, there were flags. Moses had these immense banners at the time we had typically associated, unfortunately, with Nazi rallies. There would be these immense vertical banners, which with the, the tenement houses around the place were lined, so all you saw was this array of flags in front of masses of policemen, right? 25,000 chrysanthemums, the park department band, which really expanded to immense proportions under, uh, under, Moses, uh, under uh, Moses, American Legion band, and the LaGuardia's car would pull up, and you know what tune Moses would have them play when LaGuardia got out of the Hail to the chief. To the chief. <laughs> and the little girls, you know, who would bring up the, uh, the shears to cut the ribbon. I mean, the ribbons were the most elaborate red, white, and blue tassels to be cut to open these playgrounds. And the, the shears, the little girls would come up with red with purple velvet cushions. And on them there would be sterling silver years for the mayor to cut him. And then LaGuardia would jump back into his limousine, and there would be this tremendous caravan of cars. And LaGuardia's dashes across his city with the limousine sirens wailing and the police outriders in front of him on motorcycles, you know, then there'd be another playground. I mean, he'd open 10 and 12 playgrounds in a day. While each event increased the prestige of the mayor, it also enhanced the public image of Robert Moses. Before joining LaGuardia's administration, Moses had distinguished himself in a similar position in the state government, adding miles of parkways and acres of park lands and public beaches to New York's landscape. That's why Fiorella wanted him in the city. He knew Moses was a doer. Arnold Volmer 
worked with Moses. You did not go into them without having done your homework. If you went in and ummed and awed and uh, asked what he wanted to do and so forth, you'd be thrown out on your ear very fast. You had to be prepared. You had to be succinct. Uh, a meeting with him about a significant matter might last five to eight or ten minutes, and he would make a quick decision and take quick action. As Parks Commissioner, Moses wanted to run his department without interference, not even from the mayor. LaGuardia saw things differently. Soon after he became mayor, Fiorello ordered that without his prior approval, a commissioner's request for funds could not be put on the calendar of the Board of Estimates. As secretary to the board, Pearl Bernstein made up that calendar. She recalls what happened when Moses tried to bypass Fiorello to place something on the Board of Estimates agenda. When the list came in from Bob Moses, I brought it to the mayor's attention. The mayor said, no, I don't want it on the calendar. And Bob Moses saw the calendar uh, of the Board of Estimates, and he, he just stormed, and he called me and began a very vituperative and very nasty tirade. The power struggle between Moses and LaGuardia would intensify with time, but in the early years, Fiorello was probably prepared to overlook his commissioner's questionable tactics because Moses was so adept at getting things done. One of the most important programs initiated during LaGuardia's administration was the vast expansion of New York's highway system. By 1934, new roads, bridges, and tunnels in the city had become a necessity because of the phenomenal popularity of the automobile. Come away with me, Lucille, in my In New York, the number of motor vehicles rose from 125,000 in 1914 to over 800,000 by 1934. During those same 20 years, not a single mile of high-speed highway had been completed. Historian Kenneth T. Jackson says the traffic jams were incredible. One would have had to engage in 20 miles of, uh, of red lights. Uh, it would have taken hours, probably two or three hours, to go from one end of the city to the other. Uh, the kind of a trip that uh, after the highway revolution was engineered by uh, people like Robert Moses and Fiorello LaGuardia, uh, now, of course, it's possible to drive from uh, the northern edge of New York City to the far southern tip of Coney Island in less than an hour. The most important factor in this revolution was money. As soon as money became available from the federal government through its PWA and its WPA programs, LaGuardia traveled to Washington to get as much as he could for New York. His success was due in no small part to the efforts of Robert Moses, who drew up meticulous plans for every project Fiorello proposed. Newbold Morris 
with LaGuardia's deputy mayor. The other mayors went down with demands and ideas, but he came down with complete blueprints all ready to go. LaGuardia's blueprints proved persuasive to PWA head Harold Ickes and his counterpart Harry Hopkins at WPA. Still, plans would not have been enough without Fiorello's considerable political influence among the New Dealers. Louis Yavner was a Department of Investigation Commissioner in the LaGuardia administration. Moses was responsible for building roads. It was LaGuardia, more than Moses, who got the money from the Roosevelt administration for those roads and for all the other construction. Moses did not have that kind of influence. Moses was not well regarded by Harold Ickes. LaGuardia was, and if LaGuardia hadn't gotten the money and approved the projects, Moses would have gone nowhere. LaGuardia ran into some unexpected opposition. Someone far more powerful than Harold Ickes had little regard for Robert Moses, and that was Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt's dislike, uh, some have called it hatred for Moses, went back to the days when the two men worked together on the New York State Park Council in the 1920s. Moses recalled that the president never forgave him for the way he treated Lewis Howe, FDR's close friend and confidant. The Howe incident simply added up to Howe's coming in and saying that uh, he had had instructions uh, from Roosevelt, who was a member of the State Park Council, bear in mind I was the chairman, uh, that he was to have this job and he wouldn't have time and to do much of any kind of work. He'd come in about maybe once a month or once every two months. So. Uh, I asked Franklin to pick me up. I used to go uptown with him a couple of times a week up to that point. And uh, I told him that uh, if he wanted to employ a secretary or a valet, that he should pay him himself. The growing animosity between Roosevelt and Moses broke into open conflict during construction of the Triborough Bridge. This gigantic, multi-million dollar project actually had gotten underway before Fiorello's election. But it had progressed slowly. Once in office, the mayor kicked out the Tammany appointees who had been mismanaging the Triborough Authority and had Robert Moses appointed in their place. Then Fiorello set out to obtain the $40 million he needed to finish the project. Robert Carroll. LaGuardia now goes, he's a new mayor, he goes down to Washington to ask Roosevelt for this money and, and Roosevelt says in effect, sure, there's just one thing, you have to fire Robert Moses. And LaGuardia comes to realize that Roosevelt is absolutely adamant about this, that they're not going to have this project unless uh, he does that. And one day in February 1934, Paul Wendell's the corporation counsel, and in this beginning, really, I, in my opinion, the man LaGuardia relied on very heavily for in tactics for infighting in the city. We're sitting home reading the Sunday papers in his home in Brooklyn, and LaGuardia says, I'm coming by right away and uh, pick you up. And Wendell gets into the car, and he says, no sooner did I sit down and he cut loose Jesus Christ of all the people in the city of New York. I had to pick the one man Roosevelt won't stand for. He won't give me any more money unless I get rid of him, you know. I had to pick the one man he hated, the one man he hated. At this point, Moses decided to go public and expose Roosevelt's position. The Parks Commissioner gambled that once the press got hold of the story, it would back him completely. And that's exactly what happened. The money was released from Washington, and the project went ahead. Besides the opening of the Triborough, 
other construction projects were completed in 1936. In nighttime ceremonies elaborately staged across the city, the mayor dedicated a series of new million-dollar public swimming pools. For Dominic Anisi, who was growing up in New York in those days, the pools may have been the mayor's most memorable achievement. The overall impression I have of Ligardi from my youth was that he was the guy that was responsible for the new swimming pools that were being built, particularly the one in Cortona Park where I went as a kid and uh, Orchard Beach, where we went to see the fireworks. Those are the things that I remember of him. In 1936, Fiorello also dedicated the high school of music and art. I believe this, LaGuardia said, to be one of the best contributions I will be able to make as long as I am mayor. Milton Glazer attended the high school. LaGuardia wanted the school and uh, he was a driving power behind it and he supported it and we always were conscious of that support and he would come to the school and speak to the students and uh, he was enthusiastic in his support one of the great secrets of new york city is the high school of music and art because of the number of extraordinarily gifted young people that came out who now shape our city. Perhaps Fiorello's support for the High School of Music and Art arose from his lifelong interest in music. While he was mayor, LaGuardia could often be seen at the opera or attending a band concert, and on occasion, even leading the band himself. John Steinway, once a partner in the Steinway Piano Company, remembers seeing the mayor perform. Well, as you know, he was, he was a fine musician, and he loved, he was the son of a musician, and he loved to lead the band. His favorite was the sanitation department band. It was a city band, and in those days it was about 100 pieces with a sort of uniform. Plenty of percussion, lots of brass. He'd line the boys up, and I think it was old Lang Syne or something like that. The program was not important, but the mayor was always right out in front with a long, large baton, you know, in the traditional thumpity-thump style, leading the band. Under LaGuardia, the city's transportation system continued to expand. 1936 saw the opening of the Henry Hudson Bridge that would bring motorists from the Bronx into Manhattan and the dedication of the Grand Central Parkway that would speed them on their way from the Triborough Bridge to Long Island beaches. Each of these projects was engineered by Robert Moses, who was building a power base for himself inside the city. But Moses never seemed content with the power he had. He seemed determined to have more. Fiorello was just as determined to stop him. Robert Caro describes one of their confrontations. One time Moses was trying to take over the housing program in New York, and he knew LaGuardia, public housing program, and he knew LaGuardia didn't want him to. So Moses decided to pull one of his typical public relations blitzkriegs. So he assembled uh, 200 civic leaders, most influential in New Yorkers, in an auditorium at the Museum of Natural History, and uh, for a radio broadcast. LaGuardia didn't want him to do that. But Moses had kept, he thought, the, the subject of his speech secret, and the speech was being carried over WNYC, the municipal radio station, which at that time had a considerable and influential audience. And Moses was hoping to reach the entire city right over the mayor's head and have enough public support so he could take over public housing. Somehow, however, no one knows how, LaGuardia had gotten his hands on a copy of this speech this afternoon. 
in the afternoon before. And he had made his own plans as to what to do. Now when Moses got up to speak, on a, down below him, on a table, were the microphones of WNYC, and two technicians are sitting there. And he looks down, and they give him the thumbs up signals, everything's okay, go ahead. He starts to speak. What he didn't realize was that LaGuardia, having seen this speech, and determined to stop Moses from grabbing this uh, power, had told the technicians to cut him off the air, but to keep making gestures as if he was actually going out over the air. And uh, Moses is giving this speech into a dead microphone. Fiorello believed in this construction program of roads, bridges, and tunnels, and he believed that Robert Moses was the man to accomplish its goals. This made his commissioner far more difficult to control. Seymour Grobard worked for LaGuardia. The mayor did not like to be pushed around. On half a dozen occasions, Moses would storm out of his office. He would resign. And the mayor would worry about it, and at first he'd call him up and smooth things over. But at the last few resignations, he would laugh after Moses left the office, said, he'll come around tomorrow. <laughs> if not tomorrow, the day after. And that's the way it worked out. In our little pet house, we'll be quite a pair. Just billing and cooing so high in the air. And darling, for free, we can see the world's fair. When we're, when we're all While he was battling with Moses over highways and bridges, Fiorello was involved in another project that would alter the face of the city, the 1939 New York World's Fair. Preparations for the fair had gotten underway in 1936. Flushing Meadows was being transformed, according to one writer, from a garbage dump into a fairgrounds. The huge task of building a World's Fair provided employment for thousands of tradespeople, from ironworkers and bricklayers to plasterers and painters. Among them was Gildo Spadoni, hired to paint the exterior of the Trilon the giant three-sided building that towered over the fairgrounds. Spadoni had painted other large structures, including the Triborough Bridge, so he was used to the danger in this kind of job. But he wasn't prepared for what happened when one of the guy lines that held him to the Trilon broke loose. One day, that up broke, and I was uh, half a way down. I had about four or five hundred feet of slack on the rope, and the wind took me away, I would say, about 40 feet away from the trial, always tied to the to my rigs. And then I was afraid when I come back to the trial, if I came there with my back, I would break my back, but I came with the, with my hand and knee, I just hurt my knee a little bit. The fair eventually opened on April 30th, 1939. Among those present at the opening ceremony were LaGuardia and President Franklin Roosevelt. Who come to this World's Fair in New York and to the exposition in San Francisco will, I need not tell them, receive the heartiest of welcome. They will find that the eyes of the United States are fixed on the future. Yes, our wagon is still hitched to a star, but it is a star of friendship a star of progress for mankind, a star of greater happiness and less hardship. 
a star of international goodwill, and above all, a star of peace. May the months to come carry us forward in the rays of that eternal hope. And so, my friends, the time has come for me to announce, with solemnity perhaps, but with great happiness, a fact. I hereby dedicate the World's Fair, the New York World's Fair, of 1939, and I declare it open to all mankind. It was ironic that an event designed to celebrate human progress should begin as the world was approaching another war. Throughout the summer, crowds of people journeyed to the Queen's fairgrounds in Flushing Meadows, among them England's King and Queen, who were personally escorted by Fiorello. The fair contained a variety of exhibits, including a town of tomorrow and a General Motors Futurama with miniature model cities, superhighways, elevated freeways, and expressway traffic that moved at 100 miles per hour. While some of these developments appeared years away, others seemed to be taking shape just outside the fairgrounds, which was framed by new highways and bridges that brought people there, in fact, just the day before the fair opened, the mayor dedicated the newest link in this vast network, the towering Bronx Whitestone Bridge. While similar projects were underway in other cities, there was nothing occurring on so grand a scale. In fact, New York became a model for the nation, and mayors from across the country came to see how a new transportation system should be developed. Historian Kenneth T. Jackson describes the importance of this system to the city. Had these facilities not been built, uh, the city would have, would have strangled. Uh, I don't think that uh, even if that money had gone into the public tran transit sector, that it's possible for uh, the city to have prospered and to have really almost survived as a major world capital. Jackson and other historians believe that New York, like cities elsewhere, eventually went too far in the area of automobile transportation to the detriment of mass transit. New York's mass transit was neglected, leading to serious problems that still exist today. When Fiorello left office in 1945, he could not have foreseen all this but he did foresee that Robert Moses would almost always get his own way. Moses biographer Robert Caro. There's a very poignant scene which I wrote. LaGuardia is now out of power. He's, the mayoralty is over. Of course, he's very ill. But he gets down one day to the engineer's club, and uh, one of his friends comes in and sees the mayor sitting there, former mayor sitting there, goes over and starts to chat with him and says something innocuous like, well, you know, looking back, how are things? You know, how, what do you think of the city? LaGuardia's reply is, Robert Moses has too much power. I could control him. Now no one will be able to control him. LaGuardia, The Dreamer and the Doer, has been made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. 
Most of the archival material for this series was provided by the LaGuardia Archives, by the New York City Municipal Archives and Records Center, and by WNYC. The project director is Richard K. Lieberman. The narrator was Tony Lobianco. Project coordinator, Susan Farkas. Scriptwriter, Dick Worth. Script consultant for this program, Kenneth T. Jackson. The administrator is Edwina Estrella. Original theme music is by Mark Lamparello. The mixing engineer is Gary Fink. Associate producer, Susan Vernon. The producer is Tom Vitale.